Bully beef, hard tack and plum and apple jam. Food that will be forever associated with the trenches of the Great War. How did British soldiers get their food? What did they eat? And is there any evidence of it today? One of the things that I like to do on the old front line is to not just talk about the battlefields and the landscape of the Great War, but to talk about some of that Great War history too, because it all connects to those landscapes and those battlefields and hopefully gives us a, a greater understanding of what the men and the women who served on the Western Front and other theatres of war went through. And one of the most important things for soldiers when they are soldiering is food. Food is an essential part of a soldier's life. A lot of his life in the monotonous aspects of trench warfare was geared around the provision of food and the consumption of food. So in this episode, we'll look at some aspects of food history in the Great War. Now, it's a vast subject, and we're only going to touch on different aspects of it in this episode. And there's some quite good books on it, which I'll point you to onto the Old Frontline website. But by way of an introduction to this, before we actually get to the events of 1914-18, if we look at food in the armed forces before the Great War, one of the key technological changes, one of the key moments in the provision of food to soldiers in the hundred years before the Great War was the ability to preserve food, was canning, to put that food into cans or tins or preserve it in bottles. Now, in previous wars, this had been a great issue. The provision of fresh food was often disrupted by the fighting, and that led to disease and sickness and all sorts of other issues that often ground a campaign, if not an entire army, to a halt. But the ability to preserve food in tins and be able to deliver that to troops on a battlefield completely changed things because it meant that men could be sent to extreme locations to fight where there was no fresh food they could be sent into long periods of siege warfare and have provisions provided to them and while there was nothing on a big scale where any of that was needed in a, in a vast way in the hundred years before the great war it was one of those things that made trench warfare for example on the western front possible because with canned food, you could deliver rations, food to soldiers and keep them fed. So when the Frenchman Philippe de Girard, uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, approached the British armed forces, both the army and the navy, via a British agent to sell them this idea, they took it up and it became a staple part of the ability of both the navy and the army to supply, to feed and give provisions to their troops when on active service. A few years ago, in fact quite a few years ago now, I worked on a BBC Time Watch about the war revolution, all the different aspects of technological change that made the First World War possible, and food was one part of that. And as part of the programme, we interviewed a food scientist who demonstrated how he used those original canning preservation methods to preserve carrots in sealed jars and he would take some that were tens of years old inside these jars, open them up for his students, and make them eat them. Now, they didn't look very appetising, but they still tasted vaguely like carrots, and they were still good for you. 
So this ability to preserve food in that way is something that was just as important as the development of tactics and weapons and uniforms and everything else that took place in that century before the Great War. In the period before the war, every army in the world looked at the number of calories as the idea of the importance of calories came into play and how that affected the ability of a soldier to serve and fight. They looked at how many calories a soldier would require in terms of food intake to keep him going in the field. And the British Army calculated it would be around about 4,900 calories a day for frontline soldiers. There's a really good chart from 1917 that probably has not much changed from before the war that shows that the bulk of this ration would be bread, meat and cheese, along with jam and butter. Now, for ordinary working-class soldiers joining the army before the war, coming from fairly poor and impoverished backgrounds, the provision of food like this, fresh bread, freshish meat, cheese, was something that was pretty unusual for them. And it's quite common to read the accounts of soldiers like that joining the regular army or at the beginning of the Great War joining Kitchener's army, coming out of the industrialised, polluted cities of Britain out into fresh air, eating food like this, and beginning to develop again as if they were in a second puberty in terms of the way that their body changed and they became fitter and stronger. So while soldiers throughout history, and certainly soldiers of the Great War, often moaned about the food that they were given, the reality was that for the vast majority of them, it was a regular diet that they didn't have before the war, and possibly in the Great Depression that followed the Great War, they didn't really have on any kind of scale again. But the provision of food on this level was a great challenge to the army. The original expeditionary force that went across to France in 1914, by the end of the fighting, numbered about a quarter of a million men. So the preparations to make the supply of this proposed ration, even in 1914, was really enormous and required a lot of care and attention. And when we talk about food, we also mean water as well, because water is an essential part of keeping a soldier alive and making him function, making him able to function on a battlefield. And in 1914, the supply and provision based around food and rations was done by the Army Service Corps and water by the Royal Engineers. In the Army Service Corps, there were supply depots and then there were units to actually make the food. So in the Army Service Corps in 1914, there were filled bakeries to supply the bread. This was quite a small unit of less than 100 men and something that we perhaps don't always think about when we think about the Great War. And this unit of just 100 men had 10 ovens that were capable of supplying 26,000 men. And one of these was attached to each division in the field to provide them with the bread that they needed on a daily basis. Now, the bakeries were not on the front line. In this case, in 1914, they were largely in the area around Rouen and up towards the coast, and then that bread would be shipped towards the battlefield to wherever the units they supplied were located. They also did butchering of the meat that came across to be supplied to the troops for part of their daily ration, and this was also done at a base field butchery. But how did they get the food to the men on the battlefield, to the men of the BEF who were out fighting those battles of 1914? 
While a very high proportion of transport in the British Army at the beginning of the Great War was horse-drawn, the British Expeditionary Force in 1914 was the most mechanised army in Europe, with the large amount of mechanised vehicles that it had at its disposal, both ones that were part of the regular army and ones that were requisitioned by the army when the war broke out. There's some great photographs of London buses being used for transport, for example, and also delivery vans from companies in London requisitioned by the army to be used as transport vehicles as part of the BEF in France and Flanders. Each infantry division, which was about 20,000 men, had motor transport companies of the Army Service Corps. And these operated at that level and the higher level as well in the link between the base area and the battlefield, which we'll talk about more further into the podcast. An Army Service Corps motor transport unit, which were like the delivery boys of the British Army, comprised of five officers and 337 other ranks. They had 45 three-tonne trucks, 16 30 weight trucks, plus motorbikes and cars. So the provision of that many vehicles meant that they were able to move a lot of supplies, a lot of equipment, a lot of the necessities that were required for warfare very quickly and very efficiently indeed. And while this job of the Army Service Corps is not as glamorous and is not as written about as the men who with their bullets and bayonets were in the very front line, their task on the battlefield was impossible without these men in the Army Service Corps doing their job. Just one of these motor transport companies could supply about a third of a division of 20,000 men. And then the bulk of the motor transport companies were working in what were called the lines of communication, as we've mentioned, between the base area, between the coastal area and the area where the fighting was taking place. As you get nearer to the battlefield itself, the trucks are then replaced by horse transport because the nature of roads in 1914, the nature of vehicles, often with solid tyres and not great suspension, meant that to get onto a battlefield damaged by artillery fire, that would require a different method, and that method was horses and mules. And these horse transport companies would become part of what was called the divisional train. They consisted of 26 officers and 402 men, and comprised 378 horses 17 carts and 125 wagons. So it, again, it shows with that many vehicles that the horses could pull, that was a huge amount of material again that could be moved by these units. And that investment, as I've often said in the podcast, that investment in the infrastructure and the ability to move things through that infrastructure, whether by mechanised or horse means, was all part of the British Army's ability to fight and win its battles. Once rations were received and delivered to a battalion in the field, their battalion cookers would then be used. So they had carts with cookers on them that could cook hot food, and within the unit, battalion-level cooks who would then cook the food in preparation for the troops in the field. And although soldiers then, as now, often referred to army cooks as the enemy within because the standards of food that would be delivered once all this great material had been transported and brought up to the battlefield for the cooks to prepare and make might not be to the liking of the ordinary British Tommy. Going back to what we said earlier, it was a regular diet. 
regular food supply, the food security for soldiers in the front line during the Great War for the British Army was very good. And while they grumbled and moaned about it, that's what soldiers do. So it was this framework that the British Army went to war with in 1914, with the idea of this is how they would move their rations, move their food on a battlefield to supply an army in the field. And having that ability to use canned food, preserve food, it meant that they could sustain themselves in the field, as some of the campaigns before the Great War had indeed proved. But when the British Army did go to war in 1914, how did this system stand up in what was then a very mobile war? Well, it struggled greatly. The fact that the army moved very rapidly from the coastal area up into northern France and then across the border into Belgium to fight its first battle at Mons on the 23rd of August 1914, the lines of communication, the route between the point of supply, the point of creation of food and the movement of food to a frontline area, that distance was great and it put this under stress. And then when that battle turned around and the British Army found itself on full retreat during the retreat from Mons in August into early September of 1914, over 200 miles from Mons down to the Marne, the provision of food and supply via transport, whether mechanised or horse, that came under great strain as well and often failed. There's a great little account by Frederick Balwell of the Law North Lancashire Regiment. He wrote a book called With a Reservist in France, and this is his account of what happened when the supply of rations went wrong during that fluid mobile period of 1914. On several occasions we passed food supplies left on the roadside, left for the Germans. Whole cheeses, tins of mustard, one of which I carried for four days, but on getting nothing to eat with it, I threw it away. We would arrive outside a village, allotted for billets, perhaps about 7.30pm, and after having marched the whole of the day, we were not allowed to enter the village until 11 or 12 o'clock at night to make ourselves comfy. The reason, I believe, was that it might be shelled by the enemy. No one was allowed to touch a thing, not even fruit, or he'd be punished for looting. Yet we knew very well that perhaps on the morrow the Germans would secure it all. And what this meant was that the army moving rapidly, the army service corps had come up and dumped the rations in a pre-designated location. The army didn't have the facilities or the time or the ability to pick up that rations and make something of it, and so it was left behind and it ended up in the hands of the enemy. And in going into villages, as he describes, they were not allowed to enter them until late at night when all the facilities were closed, the cafes, the estaminets, because the army feared that soldiers would overrun them and with probably little or no pay in their pockets, looting and crime might take place. So what it meant was that during that great retreat in 1914, the British army went hungry. And I'm sure a few soldiers hopped over hedges, stole chickens, picked up eggs, did all sorts of things to try and get some food, because that's what soldiers do. They carried emergency rations, which we'll talk about during the course of the podcast, but they had to have the permission of an officer to eat those rations, and that wasn't always given because it wasn't known when the next food drop would take place. So that very mobile part of the war was very tricky for food security in terms of the British Army on the battlefield. It got better when they got to the Marne and the Aisne, in particular the Aisne, where the first trenches were dug, 
and that was the first period of static warfare. With the army in one place, it was easier to supply the men on the ground, and that was much more effective. And I'm sure many soldiers probably had their first decent meal in those trenches in the villages on the Aisne than they had since before the Battle of Mons. But with the move to Flanders and northern France in October of 1914, as the Germans began their race to the sea, and the men of the British Expeditionary Force moved from the positions outside Paris up into that area, the lines of communication changed again. So just as the Army Service Corps, just as the Royal Engineers with their water, had got used to supplying the army in a specific location, it moved again, and that put it under strain. And I think, again, if you read some of the accounts of men in that October 1914 period where they're fighting around La Basse or close to Armentier or in the opening engagements at Ypres, they struggle to supply the men in the field again. But as that autumn moved towards the winter, the mobile war was over. Static warfare on a vast, vast scale was about to begin. And while soldiers of 1914 had often it on the fly, and I doubt any of them ever received anything like 4,900 calories a day, and the lines of communication supplied often broken down, lessons had been learnt, and now with a static front of about 30 miles from just south of Ypres down into northern France near the La Basse Canal, trench warfare would pose its own problems. So what would happen with a static Western Front? With the beginning of trench warfare in the winter of 1914-15 and the British Army occupying that 30-mile front from Ypres down to the La Basse area, it was able to put in place some infrastructure that really would remain pretty much permanent for much of the next four years. And there were some key towns at that point that would expand in terms of the number of towns that were used, but these would remain pretty much in use permanently by the British Army for the rest of the war. And they were the towns of Bethune, Balliol and Hazebrook. Each of those had places where the provision and supply of rations could take place and the movement of those rations, the food, could take place towards the battlefield area. Bethune had lots of factories that could be utilised. Balliol had good road junctions and routes up towards the battlefield area and Hazebrook was the main rail junction for northern France, where trains could be moved to the coast or from the coast, and the same with Rouen and Le Havre further down, Rouen being the main base depot of the British Army in the early period of the war. There were over 200,000 men in France at the close of 1914, and that was increasing with the arrival of units from the Territorial Force, the Territorial Army, and then eventually into early 1915, the arrival of some of the first Kitchener's units. While Kitchener Army divisions, whole units full of Kitchener battalions, didn't arrive until the spring of that year. Some of the first Kitchener volunteers arrived as reinforcements into what were regular battalions along different parts of the Western Front. Some years ago, when I looked at the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, for example, I was surprised that some of the very first men who joined up in September of 1914 were sent to join the 2nd Battalion in France as reinforcements in January of 1915, and they must have literally been some of the very first new army men to get to the battlefield. But what this meant was that the army was growing in size, and with it would be the growing need uh, and demand for the provision of food 
on the battlefield. So the static war, with the army being in one place, made it a lot easier to supply, made it a lot easier to get food to soldiers in the trenches, but it also created some problems. The army's view of supply was it wasn't just about food, it was also the provision of bullets and bombs for the men to actually do the fighting. And not just that, there was a need for forage for all the horses that were being used as part of the transport units. By 1918, for example, there were over 400,000 horses and mules in the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front, and it's estimated that during the war they consumed an incredible 5.4 million tonnes of forage. So in many respects, the use of horse transport, the need to supply forage, became its own self-perpetuating wheel, that the transport wasn't possible without the forage, and the forage would require transport to get it to the horses to make that transport possible in the first place. And what often happened is that the food for the troops was not prioritised over these other needs, that the forage and the bombs and the bullets and the bayonets, they would take priority. But a system of supply was created. And what I've done on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk, is put a series of photographs from the Imperial War Museum archive to give you an idea, a visual idea, of how this process of supply worked. And you might find it helpful to be looking at those images as we talk about how this system operated. So if we look at the way it worked, first of all, ships would come from Britain across to the ports of France. In the early period of the war, Le Havre, Boulogne and Calais were all used. Le Havre more for troops and Calais and Boulogne more for supplies. As the war moved on, that changed. Le Havre and Calais became two key supply routes and Boulogne became a route for men. But that moved around a lot depending on the circumstances and often on the circumstances of the activity of the Imperial German Navy in the North Sea and the English Channel, in particularly with U-boats. So ships would be brought into ports, the ships would be unloaded. As the war went on, a lot of labour from different parts of the empire were brought in. So South African Native Labour Corps, Egyptian Labour Corps, they were all used in this way to unload some of these ships. And there's a lot of photographs in particular of the Egyptian Labour Corps showing them doing this task up on some of the ports in northern France. And then from the port, the food, the supplies would be taken to the base. And the base would be in a town or a city like Rouen or Boulogne, where it was a long way from the fighting and all these provisions could be secured and sorted and then sent onwards in their journey. So at the base, rations would be put into huge depots and storage became a big issue for the British Army with facilities being acquired in some of these locations from the French or specially built. Civilian contractors were brought over to France during the war to create buildings for this kind of use, whether at storage areas like this or camps and bases and depots further into France. So, for example, at Boulogne, freezers had to be built for the storage of meat because that was coming over and couldn't always directly, quickly be sent to the front line. It would need to be held before it was made ready to be usable for the troops on the battlefield. So that meant they had to provide facilities for the storage 
of a staggering £21.6 million of meat that was stored and then issued by these depots each month. And this gives you an insight into the incredible scale of this. Then from the base, trains would be used, railway operating division of the Royal Engineers. They would be stocked up with rations in boxcars and sent to what was called a regulating station between the base area and the front line. And here, ration types would be sorted at this regulating station and then repacked into the train with an amount of each required type of ration for an entire infantry division in the field and then dispatched nearer to the front. The next stop for the train would be a railhead about 10 to 15 miles behind the front and away from serious amounts of shell fire. Later in the war when a lot of heavy artillery was used or the Germans had the ability to bomb using Gothas this became more of an issue but generally these were safe areas for this type of work to take place. Railheads were a, a scene of great and intense activity during the Great War and involved units like the Army Service Corps that don't always get discussed in the great narratives of the fighting, but also the Royal Engineers operating the trains. Later in the war, the Labour Corps being used to help unload stores, for example, but also the infantry out on rest, because the, the Army's idea of rest was not really the same as an ordinary person's idea of rest. They would always give you something to do. So a unit in rest in a village behind the lines would find themselves being sent up to a railhead to assist with the unloading of stores. And one of my Great War lodestars, Gilbert Waterhouse, he was an officer in the Essex Regiment. He wrote a whole series of poems and, and some of you know that my Twitter handle is Somcor and that's based on a, a word, a phrase to describe a generic Somme village that he uses in one of his poems. Sadly those poems would be published posthumously because Gilbert Waterhouse was killed at Serre on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, buried in Serre Road No. 2 Cemetery. But this is his impression of a railhead. Dusty and dirty and full of noisy din. If he fights upon his stomach, this here army ought to win. Somerville is the railhead, full of noisy din, full of men and horses and mules and paraffin, frozen meat and apricots, and peaches a la tin. And for soldiers like Gilbert Waterhouse and his platoon, the sight of this fabulous food was literally mouth-watering, and they often wondered where it went because so often they didn't see this stuff reach them. And there was a general feeling amongst many veterans that I spoke to in the 80s and 90s that rations like this were often pilfered by units that were supplying them, and sold to the civilian population in France for profit, personal profit. But whether that was true, and it happened on any kind of grand scale, I think is unlikely. But soldiers, again, loved to grumble about the food that they received and the food that they ate, and that was all part of their war experience. From the railheads, the rations would be loaded onto lorries, and that's where the motor transport companies of the Army Service Corps came in and they would then be driven to an area very close to the actual battlefield itself, an area with good roads. And as the war went on, the complexity of those road systems would increase as well, in that they didn't just use one road to go up and down, they would have approach routes, return routes, loop routes, and special roads 
would be constructed at Popperinger in Flanders, for example. They constructed what was called the Switch Road, which was a link road from one road system towards Ypres to one to the northeast area of Popperinger. And the Switch Road is still there today, still called the Switch Road. So these Army Service Corps convoys would be transporting this material along the roads, often the old Roman roads of France, tree-lined, cobbled, and it was a tough life for these men. It was not like fighting in the trenches, but they had to do this night and day to keep the supply of material moving forward. No matter what the weather, they had to be out there doing this, and the cabs were all open. They weren't enclosed and warm with heaters. They were open cabs and very, very cold for Army Service Corps drivers. They had a fur-lined coat that they wore later on in the war, and I've got a, a bit of trench art, which is an 18-pounder shell case with a, a sealed lid placed on the top with a petrol cap of a petrol tin so you could pour in hot water and use it like a hot water bottle, basically. Keep it up in the cab, keep it on your legs, put it in your jacket and keep you warm while you're in your open, exposed cab heading to the location where you were to deliver these rations. And that next stop was what was called the refilling points, where here a, a divisional senior supply officer would redistribute the material delivered to him by these motor transport companies of the Army Service Corps. The next stage of the routes from the refilling points towards the battlefield was where the roads had quite literally broken down, often smashed to bits by shell fire and too dangerous to move mechanised vehicles and it would be here that the divisional train, the horse transport units of the Army Service Corps, would be used. This part of the supply route was the most dangerous because it was under shell fire, gas could be dropped as gas shells were developed later on in the war, gas could be delivered to places like this, saturating an area with gas, so the casualties amongst these units were much higher compared to the others. Veterans and accounts often talk about the bodies of horses and mules lying on these supply routes, having been killed by shell fire. And when you look at the casualties amongst Army Service Corps, I mean, they are often considered to be a rear echelon unit miles from the fighting, but the men in these units often suffered casualties during these supply runs. And finally, at the end of this chain of supply, they would get to a battalion area where the regimental quartermaster sergeant would be there to sort the rations, put them onto the battalion's own transport because every infantry battalion had a transport section with ordinary soldiers who worked with wagons and horses and mules and move that food up towards the front line area where it would be delivered to the battalion cookers and the cooks would then prepare it to be taken into the trenches. And the final, final stage was when ordinary soldiers from platoons and companies would carry the hot food in Dixies, in big tubs, up towards the trenches themselves to be delivered to the men in the line. So this supply route was long and complex, but it was efficient, particularly during the period of static trench warfare from the end of 1914 up to the battles of 1917. It was very easy to supply the army like this, to keep them supplied, to guarantee that supply to keep what we would now refer to as food security. We've used that term a couple of times in this podcast, but that's essentially what it was, and it worked very well. And the investment in the overall infrastructure, 
from the provision of ships to bring the material over, the labour to actually move this food around, the transport, whether it be train, truck or horse, all of that meant that it was a very efficient system. But just like the Mobile War of 1914, 1917 was a year in which the Western Front changed, with battles like Messines and Ypres and Cambrai, the war became more mobile, and again in 1918, even more mobile with the German push in the Somme in March, in Flanders and on the Chemende d'Arme, and then the Allied counter-offensive from the Somme through to the final fighting in Mons, where the army was moving again. And so the Army Service Corps and all the supply routes had to adapt to keep up that supply. And in that period, having learnt the lessons of the early period of the war, it was much more efficient. Not as efficient, probably, as the static period of trench warfare, but nevertheless, soldiers didn't go as hungry as they had done in those early battles of the war. So that's how the provision of food operated both in peace and war. But what did they actually eat? And how good was the actual ration that soldiers survived on? During the Great War, the types of food that the British soldier ate varied greatly. The ideal at the beginning of the war was this diet of bread, of meat, of cheese, to keep a soldier supplied with the calories that he needed to function as that soldier. But even with the vast supplies of frozen meat that was brought down from the base to be distributed amongst units on the battlefield, very often that meat would be received not in a joint that the soldier could have for his Sunday lunch, but as one veteran that I interviewed described it as scrag ends of meat that were in some kind of stew with a few odd vegetables, a lot of potatoes and then the odd bit of meat. And this would be brought up in at hots as hot food in big Dixies and then distributed into the soldiers' mess tins and be eaten on the battlefield. In areas where there was potential fighting or actual fighting taking place, that supply was rudimentary in that way that it was based around things that could be easily produced, distributed and then consumed. Away from the front, when they were in rest billets, the diet might be a little bit more varied. Fish cakes is something that often gets mentioned in diaries and accounts of the First World War and something that veterans that I spoke to mentioned as well. And what a, an army cook would do would get tins of mackerel, for example, tins of bully beef, kind of mince all that up together and they used breadcrumbs to create fish cakes that could be then fried and then delivered to the soldiers. Now, that was pretty much impossible to do, I would guess, in a frontline trench, but in a rest billet in a village behind the lines or an army camp, it was much easier. So the food did vary depending on where you were. And we're not going to look at all the different possibilities and permutations of food that soldiers had, but really look at kind of what are the top foods that we think of, really, every time we think of the Great War. And that's going to be bully beef, hardtack biscuits, jam, maconakis, rum and water. And with water, also tea. So firstly, bully beef. Bully, or corned beef, was one of the staple diets of soldiers in the trenches of the Great War. It was developed in the 19th century and was part of that canning innovation that took place during that period where they could put minced corned beef into tins and it would last for a very, very long time. Frey Bentos was the most famous brand of this corned beef 
and they secured a, a contract with the army before the war to supply the army with the tins of bully. The meat was largely sourced by them from huge beef farms in South America. There was a, a big British community in places like Argentina, for example, and Frey Bentos was based in Uruguay. It was issued in squarish tins that were easy to put into boxes and therefore were easy to ship. It was small enough for a soldier to carry, so if he was given it as part of a ration, he could put it in his knapsack and take it away to consume later. And it was also part of a soldier's iron rations, which were the rations that they stored that could not be consumed without the orders of an officer to do so, so that if he was in a battle situation where food supply was cut off, he could use those iron rations, those emergency rations, to feed himself. And this consisted of bully beef and hardtack biscuits, which we'll discuss next. Every veteran I spoke to always said there was a pretty plentiful supply of tins of bully, and that given that the Army Postal Service, which was free for a soldier to use, you could write to your family and ask them to send you almost anything, that if you got a little bit adventurous, you could ask for your family to send you bottles of Worcester sauce or Hendo sauce to chuck into the bully to mash it up in your mess tin and create something that was a little bit more tasty than the monotonous taste of regular doses of bully beef. And it was regular, but they got fed up with it. If you eat the same food day in, day out, no matter how good it is, you're going to get fed up with it. And while the meat content was good, it didn't often look good. There were thick layers of fat if the tins of bully had been out in the sun, you'd undo them and you could pour the bully beef out like a liquid, which didn't look very appetising. But again, these were men who in civil life would not necessarily have access to meat on this scale, on this regularity. So it was something that was completely different to their normal experience. A few little stories connected to bully beef from the veterans that I interviewed they would all say how bored that they got with the bully beef. But the interesting thing is the ones that served in the last 100 days or so of the war when the British Army was advancing on the Western Front alongside the Commonwealth forces and their American allies and then the French pushing the Germans back, the defeat of the German army meant lots of prisoners of war. And we haven't spoke about German rations because really that is a subject in its own right. The Germans had very good food in the early period of the war, probably far more variety than British food, but the submarine blockade of the last period of the war meant that Germany was starving, starving at home, and its troops were starving on the battlefield. And those veterans who fought in the 1918 campaign that I interviewed, most Tommies, most soldiers, most veterans would have picked up a few words of German here and there, ja, nein, yes, no, kamerad, comrade... But if they fought in that period of the conflict, they would often know the word Fleisch. Because, and I remember several of them telling me this, that when you took a German prisoner in that period of the war, they'd pop their hands up and say, Kamerad, Fleisch bitte. Comrade, please give me some meat. And what they were after were tins of bully beef. And these were British soldiers who had been chomping on this stuff perhaps for four years. You know, you can have it, mate. Here's a sandbag full of it. Help yourself. Get stuck in. But it shows how desperate the German army was for food in that final year of the war. And indeed, when you read, even back to March, read some of the accounts of the German troops advancing in March 1918 and overrunning British supply depots on the battlefields, 
these units stop fighting, not because the British are defeating them, but because they overrun ration points where there are tins of bully, bread, other types of meat, stew, tins of McConaughey, rum, and the Germans stop and they consume that, and that slows down their advance. So the point, I guess, is that while soldiers grumbled in the British Army about their food, they were never short of it, not really, whereas the Germans in that final phase of the war, German soldiers were quite literally starving. Another little bully beef story for you. Jimmy Lovegrove, James Lovegrove, Smiler Lovegrove, as he was often called, was an officer in the 2nd 4th South Lancashire Regiment. And he was a young platoon commander. He looked very young in his photographs. And when he was up on the Hindenburg line in 1918, they were occupying a static part of the front where their company headquarters was in a quarry behind the system of trenches that they held and they had to go around the quarry to get up into the area where the trenches were, and it would be much easier to go up the side of the quarry, but it was a sheer face. They were delivered a whole company's worth of bully beef tins on one occasion, and when the quartermaster, the company quartermaster sergeant, looked at it, they were tins that went back to before the Boer War. And when he opened it up, the meat inside was absolutely rancid. It had either not been stored properly or it had not been good in the first place. And the men were obviously very reluctant to tuck into this. They'd eat when hungry, but this looked impossible to eat. So what they did instead is they constructed a set of steps up the side of the quarry with these thousands of tins of bully beef. And that meant it was much easier for them to come out of the company command post go up the steps, get into the area where the trenches were and get up to the front line. And he told me this story and it was somewhere near um, Hendicourt, Cagnicourt, that kind of area. And he asked me to go back to the area to see if the bully beef tins were there. And I did on one trip, but they'd long gone, long gone. The quarry was also partly filled in. But it's not uncommon in battlefield archaeology to find tins of bully beef or the remains of tins of bully beef when they've been consumed in particular the keys because they opened on this little key that took the top of the tin off so that's not uncommon with that type of archaeology i've yet to find an entire set of stairs made out of them though that's another thing entirely and then a little story from bullacore jean latay who was the former mayor of bullacore who i've mentioned in a previous podcast about that area who had his own private museum He'd lived in the village all his life. His parents had come from the village. And one of his old friends had come back to Bullacore just after the war. And on the outskirts of the village somewhere, they'd found some tins of bully beef. Now, what they opened it up, and again, the meat looked pretty rancid. But the guy gave it to his dog to eat. He thought, well, if it's no good for humans, it'd be fine for dogs. But the dog promptly dropped dead. So whatever the cause of that was, an order went out into those villages in that aftermath period of the Great War not to consume any kind of rations that were found in the ground because they could have been polluted by gas, they could have just gone off, don't eat them. So even after the war, the repercussions of the movement of all this kind of food to the battlefield was still going on. So bully beef, an iconic bit of First World War food, The French in those times that uh, British and French poilus cooperated side by side, they'd often swap food, and when they were given tins of bully beef, allegedly they called it songe, monkey, monkey meat, because it was such poor quality. But as bad as it may have been, as monotonous as it may have been, it was there regularly, and that was one of the key points, that investment in infrastructure and supply kept the British soldier fed 
with bully beef. Hand in hand with bully beef was the hardtack biscuit, that thick, solid wafer that soldiers were given during the First World War. Now, this was a much older type of ration, and there is evidence of it dating right back to Roman times. It was essentially a baked biscuit that had a long, long shelf life. It would not deteriorate. In the Great War, it could be issued at times when the provision of bread wasn't always possible. It wasn't exactly a bread substitute, but it felt like that to some soldiers. They didn't see bread, but they saw a hell of a lot of hardtack biscuits. And it was also part of that iron ration. So the rations that you had in your small pack in case of a situation where you couldn't be supplied with food would consist of bully beef and hardtack biscuits, enough to keep you fed in a very basic way until those rations eventually caught up with you. But these biscuits, and we can't stress this, they were very, very hard indeed. And one of the requirements in the early phase of the war, in the early period of Kitchener's army, was that men joining the army had good teeth. And the reason for that was that A, the army didn't want to take on the responsibility of dentistry, because that was a generation, as we see from the images and the film of that period, that the dental hygiene of soldiers was not particularly good because there was no access to easy access to dentistry in civilian life. But the requirement for good teeth was based on the idea that hardtack biscuits would be issued as part of your iron ration, and if you didn't have the teeth capable of biting into these biscuits, then you wouldn't be able to feed yourself on the battlefield. So a lot of men were rejected because of their teeth. Now, when I spoke to veterans in the 80s and 90s, I often asked them about hardtack biscuits, just, just how hard they were. And they would often say, well, they were like concrete. So I said, well, how did you eat them? They said, well, we always used to have one guy in the platoon or company that would say, oh, yeah, fine, and he'd try and bite into it, and it would break his teeth when he did it. So what we eventually did, they would say, is that we would put a load of the issued hardtacks into a sandbag. We'd get a, a cleanish sandbag, uh, that would come up with the sandbag supplies as empty to be filled eventually. But we'd, we'd purloin one of the sandbags, put the hardtack biscuits into the sandbag, and using the butt of our Lee Enfield rifle, we'd smash them up to turn them into a powder. We'd then tip that into one of our mess tins, mix in some bully beef, put a bit of water in there, and make this kind of paste, this bully beef hardtack watery paste, which we could then easily eat now if we ever have an old front line event on the battlefields where we have a dinner we're not going to be eating hard tack and bully beef paste because it doesn't sound particularly good but again if you're a hungry tommy in the trenches then this is exactly the sort of thing you're going to look to do and this kind of improvisation with food was not uncommon the australians referred to them as anzac wafers and there's film of them at gallipoli where they've got a an Anzac wafer out and they've spread some jam on there and then within seconds it's absolutely covered in flies and in hotter battlefields hotter climates where the fighting took place this was an issue and perhaps discussion for another day and it's amazing how many of these hardtack biscuits survive completely intact more than a hundred years later there are lots in museums. There's one here in Barnsley, in Experience Barnsley. They have one. Over the years, I've seen them turned into photo frames by soldiers. I remember in the archives of the Tower of London, the Royal Fusiliers, they had some that had been sent through the army postal system. 
as postcards to people back home and they'd arrived intact and decades later the biscuit was still completely together almost indestructible so you can just see how difficult it was for men to actually eat them during the war now we mentioned jam being spread onto anzac wafers jam was another big part of a soldier's diet part of that monotonous diet there's part of the old song of that period what do we want with eggs and ham when we've got plum and apple jam and plum and apple jam was the main type of jam that was issued to british soldiers it was a tin of jam with a lid and you took that lid off and the jam was within and the idea was that you'd spread that on the bread that you were issued but a lot of soldiers just ate it they ate it with spoons and spoons we haven't talked about the accoutrements of eating there was the british army mess tin which was a d-shaped mess tin with two parts a big deep section that you could put your stew and your bully beef mixed up with things in there and then a lid with a handle that you could use to drink with or to even fry some meat or other things in there uh, and eat your food out of that but soldiers had a knife fork and spoon and they quickly realized that the spoon was the most useful thing to have particularly ones with a big bowl where you could get a lot of food on the spoon and therefore in your mouth at one time and it meant that you could eat food very quickly and get as much volume of food down you as quickly as possible because there was no luxurious lunch times in the British Army on the Western Front. And you often see soldiers with spoons tucked in their putty. And they would have that there at hand so if they were in a situation where they overran some rations, either left behind by another unit in their own trenches or in a battle situation where they've captured the German position and the Germans have left food behind, they can quickly whip that spoon out, get those rations opened and get that food down their neck as quickly as possible. So a spoon tucked in the putties is always an indication of an experienced soldier who knows what he's doing. And look out for it in the photographs of the Great War. You'll see it in quite a lot of the Imperial War Museum photographs. If you carefully analyse a few, you'll see it for sure. The jam supplied to the army was made by Tickler's of Grimsby. And Tickler's plum and apple became kind of a, a byword, really, for soldiers' food of the Great War. But just like the monotonous issue of bully beef, the continuous issue of plum and apple jam kind of put many soldiers off jam for the rest of their life. Malcolm Vivian, who was an officer in the Royal Garrison Artillery, they had it and he said to me that I never wanted to eat jam again for the rest of my days. So that kind of put him off forever. But soldiers ate it and they ate it in great volume and one of the offshoots of eating it like that was what do you do with the tins? And they could be recycled and salvage and recycling was something that went on a lot in the latter period of the war. But in the early period, before the widespread issue of hand grenades, they made improvised bombs from the jam tins. They were called jam tin bombs. And there are photographs of these on the Western Front and at Gallipoli where they've taken a tickler's plum and apple jam tin. The tin's been cleaned. They've put explosive, often gun cotton explosive, inside the tin and then a wick fuse coming out the top which you lit and then you threw the tin. And that became a standard type of grenade that was used by the British Army in that early period of the war. So even food could lead on to improvisation of weaponry on the battlefields. And I'm sure there was a few occasions in which they wished they could launch tins of bully beef at the enemy as well. Another tinned food substance, and you can see how common the thread tins are in all this, was McConaughey's. McConaughey's army ration was a smallish tin 
with meat and veg stew inside it. And that consisted of sliced turnips, carrots, potatoes, onions, haricot beans and beef in a type of broth. It was made in Aberdeen by the McConaughey's company under contract to the army and issued in probably millions of tins as part of the ration to supplement fresh versions of stew made in the field. Some soldiers called it M&V, although I think that was more of a, a popular phrase for it in the Second World War. And when you were given a tin of McConaughey's, you could open it up, get the lid off, put it into the deep part of your D-shaped mess tin. There was often access to uh, some solid fuel where you could heat things up in the trenches. They developed smokeless fuel so it wouldn't attract the attention of the enemy. So you could boil up water for tea or you could heat up some McConaughey's in your mess tin. But many soldiers just ate it cold again with that big old spoon. Get the lid off, get the spoon in there and spoon it down. But often the meat and the broth that it was in congealed because of the fat that was in it. And it didn't look or even taste particularly good when you were eating it cold. And the types of vegetables that were in it caused soldiers a lot of problems with wind. And there are accounts of men having been dished out a ration of McConaughey's, then going on the march, and it sounds like every man is somehow equipped with a trumpet. I'm sure you can use your imagination to understand what I'm referring to. From food, we move on to drink, and rum is something that we will always associate with the Great War. Rum was a traditional beverage given to ordinary soldiers over a long period of military history before the Great War. In the First World War, it largely came up in rum jars, as they're often called, although those rum jars were often used to store other types of liquid material as well. They had SRD emblazoned on the side, which actually stood for Supply Reserve Depot, but many soldiers said that it stood for Soon Runs Dry or Seldom Reaches Destination. It didn't stand for Service Rum Diluted, which many people believed that it was. It was not diluted at all. This was very strong rum. It was dished out daily, the rum in the trenches, usually after stand two at dawn where the men had stood to on the fire step and then were stood down and then the rum ration was dished out, often at the same time that the field rations had been brought up to be distributed amongst the men for their breakfast. The tot of rum was set at 70 millilitres per man, but again, many soldiers felt they were always given a much smaller dose and some of it was being purloined by the quartermaster to be flogged to people in cafes behind the lines because cafe rum, coffee and rum, was a common beverage that soldiers could buy in the estaminets behind the trenches. Where did that rum come from, they asked, looking at their quartermaster. There's some indication that men were required to drink it. There are others that indicate that men could do what they want with it. I remember Aubrey Rose, who was a soldier in the Queen's Westminster Rifles, who'd signed the pledge before the war. When he was given it, he just tossed it over the back of the trench and wouldn't drink it. Now, he realised that in doing that, he might not drink it, but his mate might want it, and he could swap the rum with his friend for cigarettes or for some writing paper or something else. So men didn't necessarily drink it, but they could then use it as currency with their mates. It was famously issued before attacks, before going over the top, as a kind of Dutch courage, but again, talking to veterans, a lot of them refused to drink it under those circumstances because they wanted to have their wits about them when they did go over the bags. And it was found during the cold winter of 1916-17 that rum didn't really help 
under those cold conditions. In fact, it, it kind of made it worse. So the chief medical officer of a particular division instructed that instead the soldiers should be given whiskey, which was normally something that was the preserve of officers. And that went down very well with the men. And then a senior officer thought this was not the done thing to give ordinary PBI, poor bloody infantry soldiers, whiskey. So the whiskey ration was cut off and the rum was returned. But rum, for many young men of that generation of the Great War, was their first real experience of alcohol. Signing of the pledge, abstinence from alcohol was something very common before the war. But even the most devout abstainer quickly realised that in the experience of trench warfare, there might be occasions in which you wanted a drink. At the other extreme to rum, but absolutely vital, was water. This was an essential part of a daily diet of a soldier and it was contained in his water bottle. Every soldier carried a water bottle that was held in a webbing cradle or a leather cradle as part of their personal equipment, and they resupplied that on a regular basis as and when possible. Where did the water come from? They were not allowed to draw it from shell holes. Many men did do this but got sick, particularly with gas, which would collect in the shell holes. It meant that the water would be polluted, and drinking that water could kill you. You never knew what was at the bottom of a shell hole. One veteran I interviewed drank some water from a shell hole when he was cut off during an attack during the Third Battle of Ypres, and when it got a bit warmer and the level of the water dropped, there was half of a Gordon Highlander at the bottom of it. So soldiers were told, do not drink water under those circumstances, only the water supplied by the army. And I'll put some photographs again on the website for you to see how this water supply worked. Firstly, the water would be drawn behind the lines, many, many miles behind the lines, from underground fissures or water sources by the Royal Engineers. All of the water work was done by them. There were then water depots used to store the water near to the front, and there's a photograph of one of those on the podcast website. Water carts would then be brought up and filled up, and they would then be taken up to the battlefield area to a position just behind the trenches or where the fighting was taking place and there were also water points on the battlefield static drums or containers which water would be in and men could go to those and the water carts to fill up their water bottles on a regular basis when you were in the line itself you couldn't use the water cart or one of those water points you had to have the water brought to you so water would be brought up to the line in petrol tins that would be filled at one of these water points and then carried up by soldiers into the trenches themselves. The petrol tins had been used also for the provision of petrol and had not been cleaned out so the water often tasted of petrol which is why some men put rum in their tea because it took away the taste of the petrol that's why you kept your rum back. And some soldiers would acquire a second water bottle which they would use for the unused portion of their rum ration. So if they were not required to drink it when it was dished out, they'd put it in that second water bottle and keep that water bottle handy for situations like this where they needed to put something in their tea or have a bit of a blinder out of the line when you were away from the trenches. So water was brought up in the petrol tins, delivered, and again, part of an infantry soldier's job was to carry this water to and from, not necessarily for your own unit, but for other units as well, all part of the idea of rest within the British Army. And the water dished out to soldiers could then be used to make tea. They were given a tea ration, and the tea could then be made 
on a regular basis. The water could be heated up in their mess tin and they could make tea in there. From their family back home, they could receive packets of bovril and oxo and other types of things that they could mix into water to create something that was a little bit of a variant from the tea because drinking tea every day, I mean, there's an idea that, you know, if in doubt, brew up, the army marches on tea, but it does become monotonous. So soldiers did look to other things to give them a kind of a drink using this water. But the water itself, particularly during periods of of hot weather, the Western Front wasn't raining every day. There were periods in which it was very hot. The provision of that water was absolutely essential for the troops on the battlefield. And the creation of a water infrastructure by the Royal Engineers from fissures through to delivery, through to water points and everything else was absolutely vital, just as vital as all these other aspects of keeping an army in the field. So these types of food that we've looked at are part of the the menu of soldiers of the Great War, part of that Tommy Tucker. Tommy Tucker being incidentally an old Cockney phrase for supper. That's what they ate, that's how they ate it. It was monotonous, but it was regular. It was boring and they got fed up with it, but they were given access to food, as I've said, that many of them probably had not really had in the years before the Great War, certainly not on the scale and the regularity that the army could supply them with. And what goes in must come out. Another vital aspect of this is the provision of toilets, of latrines for soldiers. In the early period of the war, it was probably just a shell hole either near to the trench or connected to the trench with a wooden pole across it, but flies would congregate round that and give away places where soldiers were. And as I think I've said in some previous podcasts, there were occasions in which men were killed going to the toilet. But the provision of toilet facilities on the battlefield with separate latrine trenches, with proper toilets, with lids that close down. And I'll put a couple of photographs on the podcast website so you can see what army toilets were like during the war. The best ones, or the better ones, were away from the battlefield. And these photographs are showing those. I couldn't find any of a latrine trench itself. I suspect that wasn't in the top 10 locations that army photographers were looking to photograph, which is a shame, really. But the key thing was that soldiers couldn't just go to the toilet anywhere because if they did so, their trenches would be full of human waste and disease would be rife. So just as the provision of food was made, the provision of facilities for the soldiers to dispose of their human waste once they'd had that food was an important part of the whole kind of cycle of that world of the Western Front. And if you're wondering what they use for toilet paper, just about anything. Letters received from home and sent to soldiers on active service don't survive very often because they were used for those kind of purposes. Soldiers read them and read them and read them. One I remember talking to said he almost memorised what the letters contained and then desperation with lack of toilet paper meant that he ended up having to use a letter sent to him by his mum. So the army didn't kind of give you a pack of toilet paper and told you to get on with it. It was up to you to sort it out. And with that wonderful thought in mind, we'll finish off with a little look of where we might find some evidence of food in the Great War on the Western Front today. You might think it's surprising that we're discussing where you could find some evidence of soldiers' food and drink during the Great War. It's not as if I'm inviting you to go up and dig up those tins of rotten bully beef that we were talking about. There are museums like Hu Crater, Sanctuary Wood, Passchendaele Museum at Zonnebeek, the Inflanders Fields Museum. All of them have examples 
of wartime rations as issued to the troops. So you can see tins of bully, you can see tins of McConaughey, you can see the tea ration and the mess tins and the spoons that they use and all that kind of stuff. So you can go and examine that. And that gives you a good insight into the food culture, really, of the British soldier during the Great War. But there are places where you can go to where you can get a bit of an insight into how it all worked and where it took place, as it were. So, for example, water supply points. Some years ago, I was doing some research in the Ancre Valley just outside Albert, and I found a location, a field, which had not been touched since the Great War, where there were some what looked like concrete columns in it. And when I looked at it, what I discovered that it was, was a water pumping station built by the Royal Engineers, possibly during the winter of 1916-17. It was in a location just northeast of Albert on the Somme, in a bit of a dip in the Ancre Valley, wouldn't have been seen by any German trenches, up on the high ground around beyond Thiepval, for example, or Corselet, and water could be pumped from a deep fissure there and then put into petrol tins or into a water cart and then taken up towards the battlefield area. Now, I suspect there aren't too many of those left. In fact, not much evidence of the British water supply system in the Great War full stop. So it's quite a significant kind of location, really, in terms of the provision of food and drink for soldiers on the battlefields. To get an idea of the provision of supplies, one of the key railheads on the Somme front was Edge Hill at Dernancourt, a big open bit of field just outside the village, close towards Albert, where the trains could come in, unload troops, but also unload supplies for the Army Service Corps to take up to the forward positions. And if you wanted to get an insight into what a typical route towards the front line would be for a ration party carrying that food upwards... It's quite a good walk from Mesnil up the Mesnil Valley towards Mesnil Ridge and Knightsbridge cemeteries. And then beyond that is the Newfoundland Park, where the trenches are still located. So in following that route, you're following the route of ration parties for the units of the Hull Pals who were there in the early part of 1916, the men of the 29th Division, the Essex, the Newfoundlanders, the South Wales Borderers who would eventually go over the top in that area on the first day of the Somme. But you're following that kind of route and it gives you an insight into those locations. I think there's something quite special about those places that are slightly away from the battlefield where we see a bit of an echo of that infrastructure that was once so important. And then in the villages behind the lines, we did an episode on Engel Belmere, and you can go back through the podcast catalogue to, to find that. But in almost any village behind the lines on the Somme, there are the original buildings in which food was prepared and food was consumed. You can stand there, look into these Watland Daub-style barns with the big wooden frames and the high roofs, and you can imagine soldiers brewing up in there, having their tea, eating their McConaughey's, deciding what they're going to do with their hardtack and bully, it's very, very atmospheric, even now, even more than a century later, and it gives us a bit of an insight into the places where soldiers consume this food that was such a vital part of their lives in the trenches and on the battlefields of the Great War. So when we walk this ground, particularly among the shallow ditches that were once the trenches of the Great War, if we let our imagination run wild, we can almost smell the Great War the smell of stew in Dixie's, of tea on the boil. Food was such an essential part of a soldier's experience in that war. 
And when we walk the fields, that landscape of the Western Front, among the shards of glass, the pieces of rum jar, and tiny portions of tin that we find in those fields, we find that evidence of it here on the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.